0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to Nesson Dormer. This is episode three of your weekly 80s and 90s football chat. The pod is available on Acast, it's available on iTunes. Why don't you subscribe while you're there? Thank you to everybody who's subscribed so far, by the way. This is just three friends or groups of friends talking about football and hopefully you'll find it interesting. If you go to the website, which is nessundormapod.com, there's also a mailing list you can sign up for there as well. I'm Lee Calvert. I am, I suppose, a host of some description. And joining me for this podcast is uh, Rob Smythe of The Guardian. Hello, Rob. Hello. And back from episode, after a little gap after episode one, is Gary Naylor. Good evening, Gary. Uh, Good evening. (laughs) Apologies to everybody who's listened to the first two episodes that we have had some slight sound issues. We are working on it. We we are, we're not backed by a large corporation or large names or anything like that. This is just us trying to do our best to record something that you find interesting and will enjoy. Going back to the last couple of weeks, though, we, if you remember last week, Rob, we talked about footballers that always looked old. And we we suge- did, yeah. And we suggested, and 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 somebody on Twitter got in touch on Twitter at Nessundormapod and suggested Giuseppe Bergomi. It was Mark. Oh, that's
0: a great chat. Yeah, that's-
1: yeah. Mark Etches on Twitter got in touch and suggested Jesse Bergomi. Go on, you, you were saying.
0: No, it was good. he was in the World Cup squad, wasn't he? When they won it in eighty two, I think he was about seventeen, eighteen, and he had a really thick tash even then. That's exactly um, the picture that Mark on Twitter shared. Yeah, the basically. I'm just thinking about it. It's a shame that I North Ireland didn't play it in that tournament. We should have had. White side against at combined age thirty five. Both of them
1: looked, um, looked yeah. about thirty five. <laughs> yeah, and he actually looked exactly like a caricature drawing given of, of an Italian waiter, <laughs> which was unfortunate. But he was eighteen, as you said, looked about forty, and that made made me think. I remember, do you remember Roland Nilsson? Yes, He played fullback for Sheffield Wednesday, who for his whole career
0: looked like a forty year old accountant. <laughs> he did. <laughs> he was a bloody good player, you know. He, I think Rod Atkinson rates him one of the best players he ever managed. And, um, yeah, he managed a few. He did, yeah. But it's a good point. He did look like an accountant and, and quite possibly became one, I don't know.
1: And last one, some updates from last week. Rob, you asked both myself and uh, Mike Gibbons last week, could we remember if Steve Stone had blonde hair and neither of us could? However, Ian McCourt got in touch on Twitter at Nesson DormaPod and said, yes, he did, and actually found the picture.
0: Yeah, that's tremendous, isn't it? That's... So he did actually have... That, that's a great self-deprecating physical banter I think um, fair play to it it must be yes colouring the what, what, it's more of a would you call it a hair fringe an
1: egg fringe that he had there coloured that blonde but Ian McCourt you done a lord's work there finding that picture so thank you very much now coming up this week we have got a, a few features first of all we're going to talk about some interesting players that you maybe might not have heard of from the 80s and 90s we'll have a discussion about Denmark's great 1992 triumph and we'll also have some memories of the old Wembley as well so let's crack on, shall we? First of all then, interesting players you've never heard of. Rob, do you want to kick us off?
0: Uh, yeah, I, I've gone for full hipster uh, points here. I've gone, picked a, a Salvadoran who played for Cadiz in Spain in the 80s uh, called Mariko Gonzalez. And um, as ridiculous as it sounds, he was, by all accounts, an amazing player. We'll put a YouTube link on... Our Twitter feed. And it's worth watching. He was just complete individualist. He was kind of doing PlayStation moves back or well, I suppose back then there was ZX eighty one moves or whatever you call them. <laughs> but he just he his attitude is kind of everything. That kind of if you, if I was a maverick, he's a maverick. I would want to be. He would he'd turn up for training straight from a night out. He was Maradona said he was the best player in Spain, and that's when Maradona was playing there. Uh, he's got a famous goal against Barcelona, and actually Barcelona took him on a pre-season tour, I think it was to America where they viewed signing him and he, um, he missed a the flight. Then when there was a fire alarm, he just didn't bother getting out of bed because he was with a woman. And so they, they kind of binned him off. I'm not sure the full story, but I don't know him that well, but I do know that his highlights look really modern for someone who was doing all this 35 years ago and just, I just played completely off the cuff. He's, he comes across as like a cross between Matt LaTissier and George best. He, he didn't want to go to bigger clubs. There was a story that uh, a Serie A side, I think it was Atalanta, came to look at him and he knew they were watching. And because he wanted to stay in Cadiz, which, which kind of suited his whole anarchic nature, he <laughs> deliberately played crap. And because Serie a, you know, it would like, <coughs> he would never have thrived there. Probably not as a footballer and certainly not as a person. He's, he's and just... he just seems like, he, he, no, he just sounds like the kind of guy who makes me wish I'd paid attention in Spanish at school so that I could actually look him up a bit more. Because <laughs> Is he's his just, name yeah,
1: literally spelt.
0: Magico. I know it's Magico. No, so he but... was. It was called Magico. So that that was the name given him by Gith ah. fans. I, th- I think it's Jose. D- I don't know actually. Uh, I haven't done any research because <laughs> I am lazy. But yeah, the the highlights are really interesting because it is. I mean, a lot of it is kind of. It's it's not clean in the way that PlayStation players are these days. But then you know, it was thirty five years ago, and there's so much kind of imagination and, and just fun as well. Um, and then, yeah, apparently he used to go to the beach and be smoking dope on the beach and stuff, and it just sounds like a.
1: He's got almost character. like the all of the entire checklist of the mercurial player from
0: the 80s. Yeah, exactly. Except he happened. And it's also, it's quite nice that there's a bit of mythology around him. Like there were some stories that I suspect are, are bullshit, but that he <laughs> turned up drunk for a game at half time when they were 2-0 down. And then they won 3-2 and he scored two and made one. And there's still, I think deep down everyone knows that's not true, but there's still a kind of element that did it. Some Cadiz fans will swear to this day it did happen. It was some pre-season tournament or something, I don't know. So there you so, go. Yeah, he sounds,
1: yeah. sounds like a character. So there you go, Mahiko Gonzalez. We will put the link onto the Twitter feed when this goes up, so you can listen to listen to us and have a look at that as well. Um, who have I got then? I've got um, a player, and I, you know, sometimes you, I, mean, I can very well understand why I've never heard of Mahiko Gonzalez. I'll be honest, but <laughs> I, I, I could never quite understand why I'd, I'd never heard of Cess Pod. And I mentioned him last week. Now, I mean. His name's not great, is it? It sounds like somewhere where the waste goes on a space shuttle or something. But, it's a, <laughs> but Cyril Pod was his name, known as Cess Pod. Played is it weirdly. Um, but he was present or involved in lots and lots of kind of seminal, or a number of what you might call seminal moments in, in English league football, really. He was, he was from St. Kitts. He, played exclusive, he came over to, uh, over to England, Britain when he was nine years old. He played exclusively within Yorkshire. He played, for, he played for Bradford, he played for Scarborough, and he played for Osset United or something, I think, by the end of it. He had a trial for Bradford. He was one of the first black players to be a professional. 1970, he had a trial for Bradford. They made him play left-back, and he played in such a way that nobody knew that he was even left foot. He wasn't left-footed. <laughs> he stuck him at left-back. He didn't know he was left-footed. He had to, and he says he had to go home and practice that day so that when they picked him again, he wouldn't be looking like he's completely out of place. He had 565 appearances for Bradford. Then he played for Halifax, actually. Yeah, Halifax. Then he retired, but then Scarborough came calling. He was the first black player to get a testimonial, which is why I
0: can't believe I've never heard of that. Exactly. It makes no sense. I'd not heard of him at all. And um, yeah, you hear a lot about players like Albert Johannesson, who was obviously before him, but I'm really surprised. Um, I'd not heard of him at all. And it's, it's a great name as well. It is Come a fantastic, on. and he he was in the
1: the reason I spotted him is that I eyed the name. It was the name that drew me in. I eyed the name in the I think it was a 1982 PFA Team of the Year for Division Three,
0: and he was in it basically. That, and he, sorry, guys, you talk about names drawing you in. I was going to say that happened to me with a cricketer called Napoleon Einstein, but apparently said, like "Hey, he's just crap and there's no." <laughs> Never has the twain not met, probably. But,
1: but I mean, if you think about his testimonial, I don't. Know if, I don't remember. This. I don't know if you remember this, Gary. But um, he was in. He had. I mean, you think about how dodgy this is now. He'd never get away with it. He actually had a black All Stars eleven versus a white team for his testimonial. Yeah,
2: it's the kind of thing that was talked about, yeah, and that... um, and I think there the were one or two testimonials like this. It was all done in the best possible taste, but of course, <laughs> could never be done now.
1: Yeah, so, but, it, but they say it was it was even though he played most of his career in the bottom two divisions, he, he was held in quite a lot of respect because that all-star black Eleven was, uh, you know, Cyril Regis turned up, all the Brendan Batson turned up, all the major sort of black players of the era turned up because he is seen as a bit of a trailblazer. But here's an interesting story. He came out of retirement for Scarborough in 1987 when Neil Warnock got in touch with him and said, I want you to be the captain. And this is another thing. I didn't know this about Neil Warnock. Did you know that Neil Warnock was a chiropodist? <laughs>
0: No, um, that's that's brilliant. I yeah, so
1: that at all. Neil Warnock went to see him, and Seth Pod had an ingrowing toenail. I've got one at the moment. Well, you, give Warnock a call. I'm sure he hasn't got oh. other things to do. But <laughs> Neil Warnock fixed his ingrowing toenail because lit- I have to. This bears repeating. Literally, he is a chiropodist. and then basically managed to persuade him to come and play for the fo- play for Scarborough, and then he captained Scarborough to be promoted into the football league, and they were the first team. To be promoted into the into the football league in the new oh was that in eighty
0: seven yes or it was Scarborough was in eighty seven yeah is is that the this era when there's that video of the man falling through the roof I don't know that I'll one. send it I'll send it to you you can stick it on the uh, feed I'm pretty sure it's that I mean it's I, I you probably shouldn't laugh in that he could have died but he but he didn't <laughs> and it was fine I'll send it to you but can I just a quick story about Warlock I I, I won't say who it was but he was he inspired um one of my former colleague to lose two and a half stone because um, he was doing a press conference and Warnock was talking about how Adil Tarab was too fat and wasn't training and Warnock looked at this guy (laughs) I went so it was and said no offense (laughs) he went home that day and just basically thundered all the way home he said that was the inspiration and he lost two and a half stone in about I don't know six months or something so So, I
1: mean Warnock just goes around the country doing all his good works fixing toenails inspiring diets (laughs)
2: <laughs> and uh, rejoices in the first name of Colin, of course.
1: <laughs> it does. Is, that, is he Colin Neil Warner? Is he? The, the,
2: he's he's think... Colin something. You need to put it into a, a kind of anagram program and see what comes out.
1: Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but to finish off on Cespedes, he did. He, he finished off his career. He was actually a community lead in Leeds for Leeds United, and when Wilkinson was there from eighty eight onwards. Wow, we, we've got. We've got Rob Backchi coming on in a few weeks to talk about Wilkinson era lead. So actually, maybe he'll know a little bit about that. We can we can ask him. And he's now the technical director
0: of the Football Association of Saint Lucia. Think, I'm really amazed. No one's heard because it, also it, it's not the kind of name you forget either. No, it's just weird. Well, well yeah. Anyway, good when work. you
1: go looking, you can find him quite a lot about him, which is why I'm, I'm amazed that I, I didn't know that much about him. Hmm. Together?
2: A couple of things a couple of things in response to that. I think I, I think I have heard of him, but I kind of I'm getting to the age where you get a memory of a memory and, and it gets so distant you can't remember what's real and what's not real. But I, I kind of think I've heard of him and I think where I probably have come across him is in a kind of early where Saturday comes and I suspect it's related to community work because you've got to be you've got to be pretty tough to go into Leeds United football club at that time of uh at that time uh, in history because the, there was strong national front uh, element to lead support and to lead united to credit they took significant steps at a time when there was a lot of complacency around this, this kind of thing and they rooted out the uh, the fascists and they moved the club forward and if he played any part in that at all it sounds like he did then he deserves every uh, every rum and coke on the beach in Saint Lucia that <laughs> that, uh, that he can that he can muster because people put their, their backs on the line and went into some difficult situation at, at Leeds and did a fantastic job and there is a there is a whole story maybe in a future time of, of how the political and the social just came together to to change ball for the better and really organized activity uh by uh fashion around certain football clubs and how that was stopped
1: yeah so gary we've all had a, we, we picked um play that you know you might not have heard of or you might you want to remember or interesting stories have you got one
2: uh, more a footnote than a headline in football history, and it's Alan Harper, the Gargoyle-faced Everton UT team man, later played at the likes of uh, Luton and uh, I think uh, also at, uh, Sheffield uh, Sheffield Wednesday. But uh, his career, in some ways, was was summarised by just one match, and that was the um, the fifth round uh, FA Cup on a on a cold night. At White Hart Lane, Ray Clements is a goalkeeper. Now, Ray Clements came from the Tony Schumacher school of clearing out a forward when uh, mm-hmm. through on goal. He Took no prisoners whatsoever. You've also got in there uh, Graham Roberts, who uh, oh, yeah. later improved community relations at uh, Glasgow Rangers. <laughs> now, um, he he was the man who took no prisoners. And at centre forward, you had the uh, the poor man's uh, Mick Harford. You had Mark Falco, who was. Uh, he was never knowingly under uh, uh, under employed uh, in terms of tackling and closing down and very early in this match i'd ridden my uh, bike from Highbury where I lived uh, up to White Hart Lane. It was the first time i'd ridden my bike there, and I thought you know that Tottenham and Arsenal might be a kind of distance that Everton and Liverpool are across the park <laughs> instead it's about five miles entirely into the wind and then you get to Seven Sisters Station and you think oh White Hart Lane's just here and you've still got such a long way to go. Anyway I got there, we were in the away end corralled behind the fences in the away end as we as we were then. Uh, dark night, wonderful lights always enhances the, the sense of drama and um, the Everton side was that mid 80s side and we're going to do that It's a later stage, so I won't go through it all. But Mark Falco, in the ninth minute, probably a little bit before the ninth minute, crunched into Kevin Ratcliffe, Everton's captain on the halfway line, went straight through him. Ratcliffe was injured. Now, Ratcliffe was never injured, but also in those days, you never were substituted in the ninth minute. You know, you had to be not just carrying a leg in the kind of metaphorical sense of getting cramped in the FA Cup final, but literally carrying a leg to be (laughs) substituted at that time. And Alan Harper, as was his wont, was asked to fill in. Now, he's just seen his captain walk off the field or be half-carried off the field in the ninth minute, and he looks at his immediate opponent, and it's Mark Falco. And Harper goes into centre-half, and he plays an absolute blinder. He, He headed every ball, he tackled every man, he blocked every pass. He did all of this knowing that almost certainly he would be out for the next match because he was the player who came in and filled in. And Everton won 2-1 when the FA Cup really, really mattered. Mm-hmm. Uh, as yet again, that this uh, side had delivered. And at the heart of that was one of the greatest performances I ever saw, from certainly from a player as unheralded as Alan Harper, um, he went in, he played like a captain for the captain and for the side. We turned over Tottenham 2-1. We later, of course, went on to the Merseyside FA Cup Final of 1986. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, at a, a later date. But that's what Alan Harper was. He was the man who came in and did a job. He got his medals because he was an unused substitute in the Cup in his Cup Final. And uh, he got a, a League Champions medal in, in '85, I think. But that night was what heart, soul, and being uh, an Evertonian was all about. And I thank Alan Harper for that memory.
1: Yeah, we, we, we do have to point out to Gary sometimes that there are other football clubs available in, uh, in the Football <laughs> League to uh, to reflect on. But unfortunately, Gary's got such a healthy knowledge of Everton and got great stories of games he was at that it always ends up coming back there, and quite rightly so. So there you go. And that was some plays you might have. Maybe you can let us know at Ness and Dorma Pod. Or you can get in touch on the email. Contact at Nessandormapod.com. Have any suggestions of players we should talk about who maybe people haven't quite heard of. Let's move on to talk about Denmark in 1992, the fairy tale story that perhaps we all remember, but let's let's dig a little bit deeper into it. Now, Rob, you've literally written the book on on, on Denmark in the 80s. So do you want to give us a quick, you know, what was it like? We're going to pick this up from when they started qualifying in 1990. So just give us a kind of what, what was inherited by the coach in 1990 with Denmark.
0: It, it was not a great deal, really. They, The, the great 80s team, and they were a, a spectacular team, and um, yeah, by the book, blah, blah, blah. They've kind of faded to the point where they failed to qualify for the World Cup in 1990. Most of them have retired or were about to retire. I think the only one left really was, I think, well, Michael Loudrop was one, but then yeah. he will get onto him. And there were a couple of others, but none of the big players. The manager left. There was some kind of, this press basically stitched him up, talk about a dodgy bank account so he took an offer to go manage turkey and then his number two ricard Moller nielsen uh took over for the qualification for UN '82. but yeah they, they weren't in a great way it was yeah, the team aged really really quickly um they weren't actually the strange thing is they weren't that similar age but they kind of just all went over the hill together younger players and older players and so there was kind of starting over really
1: yeah, so they'd lost the likes of Preben Elkir, hadn't they? They'd lost, they'd lost Frank Arneson, they'd lost all these, these sort Soren of... Soren Lerby, Morton yeah.
0: Olsen, like
1: genuinely great players.
2: Michael Laudrup.
1: Well, he, well, he was he still started... there. We'll come on to that in a minute, about how oh. this all kind of hung together really. Yes. Because he, um, Obviously, you mentioned that Seth Pontiac had gone, hadn't he? he? He hadn't retired, had he? You said he'd gone to, to Manchester. Turkey. No, he went, yeah, he
0: went to Manchester Turkey. There was um, Yeah, basically there was a press story saying that he had some... I forget where it was now so so long since we did the book yeah. that's terrible but anyway he he was and then he was kind of i think he was hacked off and maybe he saw the way the wood was blowing as well i don't know so he went to turkey and he did a brilliant job there they didn't qualify or anything but he's kind of recognized as the man who laid the groundwork for what happened you know when they got to the semis in 2002 and so on but that is another story
1: yeah so and 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 so the story goes, goes Richard Mullen-Nielsen, who ended up taking over, was probably about fifth choice. They actually appointed yeah. so, a German guy called Horst Werler. There was a complete
0: farce for that, yeah. yeah. He turned up for a press conference and he didn't know, but appointed or his club didn't. Um, it was a It was a pretty big shambles, yeah. He was still under
1: contract with his club in Germany, wasn't he?
0: Yeah, that's right. And
1: it was so basically. so in the end they couldn't appoint him and then it was, they probably tried some other people and finally begrudgingly gave the job to Ricard Moller Nielsen um, it was a difficult situation for him according to all accounts because the players weren't too keen he'd previously been a sort of kit man come coach come youth team coach hadn't he so there was a question about whether they respected him a great deal as well if I remember
0: yeah, that's right. And then there was also issues over style of play, which which was well, where he was kind the of
1: He was kind of the Roy Hodgson of Denmark, wasn't he? He, he was he was all about shape and roles and, and effort, And, you know, if, if there was a term for it back then, it would have been blanket defending or or something like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know enough about his career apart from that, but the only thing I would say is that that was probably the best way to cut his cloth because he had the Loudrop brothers, but he didn't have a huge amount else. Um, So Mm. it wasn't like the 86 team. The 86 team was just full. They were almost too attacking, actually, and that's where they came undone. But this team, it was pretty limited, which is what made their achievement so much greater, really. And I think from his
1: point of view, it was like, well, we keep losing. I suppose I'm not going to make any apologies for trying to stop us from losing.
0: Yeah, the, the problem they had, there was a game when he took off, I think, one or both of the loud drops when they were looking for a winner, that didn't help. The big problem he had with Michael Lounge was he'd just joined Barcelona, who played football from the future <laughs> and it was a, the contrast was so great and I think also he felt like there was not I don't know if pressure is quite the right word but there was he gave was giving so much to Barcelona he kind of decided and also because he was the last man standing from the 80s team there was a huge amount of focus on him in Denmark and I think he decided I could only do one yeah. and once he decided that then it was obvious who you're going to play for you know he play with Stoichkov and Four Cruyff then obviously yeah so he pulled out I think during the qualification, his brother pulled out for a while as well, but then came back um, yeah, towards either towards the end or when they when they were included. If you look at the, if you look at the
1: opening game of that qualification, um, which was against they won four one against the Faroe Islands. They, it's, if you watch Michael Loudrop in that game, it is a masterclass in I can't be asked. <laughs> Even though they win, honestly, he just looks,
0: he just does not give one at all in that game. Michael Loudrop not interested. Yeah, which is not because he was such a kind of enthusiastic player, so it kind of guess shows where his head was at. Um, I mean, it can't be easy, though, like all due respect and all that, but to go from playing with some of the people he did at Barcelona, I mean, he'd go on to play with Romario and people like that, it must have been quite difficult. And also having played with Elkyard, and Lerby and Arneson and Jesper Olsen, Molby, it must have been hard. I mean, it, they weren't bad players, obviously, because they wanted to win the European Championship, but it was a much more prosaic way of playing um, and he's quite a romantic as well it's a bit like Camp in the way that he, like he does see football as art you know we can say it's pompous or whatever but that's how he sees it right. so it's really it was a bit difficult and as we him. know
1: all romantics go to Swansea don't they exactly <laughs> yeah the, the final straw was him I think he was substituted in the, quali- the first qualifying game against Northern Ireland they were in their qualifying group and that was a kind of final straw for loud and I think it was like well if you're going to make me play like this and take me off and it's raining I'm going, <laughs> but as you say, Brian Laudrup jacked in for a period as well, and and Jan Heintz. Do you remember Jan Han- Heintz? He walked but, out vaguely. On a, yeah,
0: he's a defender, he, wasn't he? Yeah, he walked yeah. out on
1: the squad as well. I think it is difficult to overstate how disliked Ricard Muller Nielsen was at the end of the qualify the unsuccessful qualifying campaign because Yugoslavia topped the group. This was to t- let. I'll digress slightly. Euro '92, eight teams, eight teams in two groups. You think about the Euros it, now. I almost had to reread it to remind myself. Eight teams in two
0: groups. It's worth talking about who didn't qualify. Spain didn't qualify, did they? Italy didn't. Um, those were the big two. But yeah, so obviously Scotland did qualify. Sweden were hosts, so they would have qualified. But yeah, it was quite, it was quite interesting. That was the last eight Euro's. And yeah, then, and that's the funny thing though. England are remembered for having a shocker, and they did. But ultimately, they, did. they had a shocker in the tournament that was only eight teams, and they kind of already got to the quarterfinals by getting there. Um, that's the mad thing,
1: isn't a... it? Two groups of four straight into the semi finals. That's yeah, just yeah. Un- unbelievable. It's well, I, yeah, I mean I quite enjoyed it, but yeah, you're right. It's hard to imagine. I'm, yeah, I'm like, not saying I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm just saying it's hmm. unbelievable when you look at tournaments no. now to imagine that that's yes. how they will be played. It's just it's just Yeah, exactly. It's just ridiculous. Where do you stand on the small tournament numbers, Gary?
2: Oh, I'm all for uh, large tournaments. Uh, oh. I wrote a piece that The Guardian used about defending the expansion of the of the World Cup. Um, it's it's a World Cup for a reason. The world needs to be there, and as long as the, the whole thing is done in a, in a month, I'm all for having as many uh, as many participants as possible in the final stages. You know, come one, come all. It's, uh, it's a big party. But the you know the 1984 tournament was uh, wasn't even covered on uh, British television. Uh, England did not qualify, and so uh, we didn't see the 1984. 1984- Uh, tournament, Platini and that wonderful 1984 uh, French team, Platini scored nine goals Um, the Euros was a strange thing because there was was kind of challenge rounds like the old style uh, world snooker championship I think (laughs) in in the kind of 60s and 70s so it's a tournament that took time to find its feet I think and the romantic story of, of Denmark um, in 1992, I think was was an important uh, element in uh, establishing the the tournament's uh, sort of narrative, if you like, because it was it was fractured until then. And of course, then you've got Euro '96 and footballs coming home, and it hasn't looked back. But um, back at the question, um, I think uh, tournaments that are called Euro or called World should have as many as possible of the representatives of Europe and the world there.
1: Yeah, I suppose you I suppose you just decanting the qualifiers into a month, aren't you? If you look at it that way, you could. But is that a problem? Because you're still, you're still getting to see horrible term but
0: a festival of football,
1: aren't you, Rob?
0: Well, I I think the last few World Cups are the weakest and that's not just because there are more teams, but I think it plays a part. I don't know. I, I prefer the idea of elite competition. But also what I like about the old system is the qualifying games became so much more intense and significant. I mean, if you said about UN82... Spain didn't qualify. Italy didn't qualify. England needed a late goal to qualify. A lot of teams. I don't know. I used to like it when qualification was really, really cut through. But I, <laughs> I, I get Gary's. I get Gary's point. I don't know. I, I prefer the idea of elite competition personally.
2: So I want to see Italy there in the in the finals, getting beat in the finals. I don't want them going out as was often the case in those days, because they'd they'd drawn one one with Greece or something like this, and that one point or the the goal difference stopped them going to a tournament final. I don't mind the South being knocked out, but I don't want them knocked out because of a wet night in Stoke, essentially, um, where they've drawn one one against a, a lower team in a. In a qualifying tournament, and there we are, all lined up for a festival of football. And um, you know, some of the biggest teams and the best players aren't there. I, I agree with elite versus elite, but surely the cream rises to the top. And when you've got quarterfinals, a final, a semifinals, and a final, then you've got you've got eight teams there who ought to be the best, and they're they're playing against each other. So, I yeah, you know, pretty strong on this one. I think that, uh, I think that you should aim to get as many as many people to the party as possible, and then see what happens.
1: Okay, well, maybe, you know, to be revisited, we'll come back to Denmark now, basically, and that's... Yeah, so it's impossible to overstate how much Moller Nielsen was was disliked, really, when they didn't qualify. He was he had something like a... They did a poll, and only 5% of the public actually wanted him to stay in the job, and they were talking about Morton Olsen coming in, or they wanted to set Pontiac back. I mean, I think that was a little bit... Trying to look at it, it's easy with hindsight, but it's a bit unfair given, as you said, Rob, at the beginning, they had been pretty terrible up to 1990 as well. And when you think about what he inherited, you know, who would have done miracles with that team?
0: Well, and they were in Yugoslavia's group, and it was that amazing Yugoslavia team. Yeah, I suppose. I think, I don't don't know, because we didn't look into it that much. It was just a postscript in the book, really, because it was such a different team. It felt like they deserved their own book. But um, I suspect a lot of it would have been to do with style of play and a reaction to the 80s team. Um, who were just so entertaining and, so, and, and to a fault, really, because um, eventually it cost them something in the World Cup. So I guess part of it was that. I don't know, but it's quite it's quite surprising sometimes when you realise that the, the entitlement we associate with modern football actually, I don't think it existed in the same way or to the same extent in the past, but it was there as well. I mean, obviously, we know all about the stuff calling for Alex Ferguson to go and other people. So it's quite interesting to hear that it was quite so hostile towards him, when really, all right, they were not a great side, but ultimately, you know, second player, they finished second, didn't they, I think, behind Yugoslavia. Yeah,
1: they beat, Yugosla- I mean, they beat Yugoslavia in one of the qualifying games as well, you know, it was, and it was, as you say, it was that Yugoslavia team.
0: Yeah, who were genuinely great. So, so I suppose, I mean, that was par, the the actual results, so I don't know, but I, I suppose there may also be a sense that the world, or certainly Denmark, didn't know at the time quite how good Yugoslavia were, I don't know. There's also, um, I think the entire population of Denmark were football
1: hipsters probably about 20 years before <laughs> everybody else weren't they there's probably that that's but because they, they, in fact that Yugoslavia they lost the Yugoslavia in qualifying it was the only game in qualifying they actually lost yeah but obviously Yugoslavia were sweeping everybody aside as they as they came through so they didn't qualify and then of course it all looked pretty bleak and then UN resolution 757 came in does everyone remember UN resolution 757
0: I, I do now. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> which was obviously I when
1: they banned Yugoslavia from taking part because the war had kicked off. That was UN Resolution 757. Um, and they were literally given, everyone was on holiday, they were given 10 days to get ready.
0: Ah, uh, well, Peter Schmeichel, I, I, I say this as if I've spoken to him myself, which I clearly haven't, but Schmeichel apparently gets very annoyed if you say they were all having a jolly. Okay. Um, because um, I think, I'm not sure whether they've been putting or not, but apparently he gets really annoyed about it. But anyway, I mean, a few of them were, and I think Ricard Mullen-Nielsen was having a new kitchen put in or something. Um, yeah, and they were actually, I think they were meant to play. Do you remember CIS? I do, which was, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Confederation so of qualified. Independent States. They were meant
1: to play yeah. them, I think, about, about as a kind of end-of-season stroke warm-up for CIS.
0: Oh, okay, I didn't know that. I, I remember CIS because they had Kajelskis, which was... Very exciting as a young United fan. So yeah, so it was. So I think that's probably where Schmeichel probably gets worked
1: up. So I mean, we weren't all basically on the beach getting pissed. We were. We, the, the season had ended, however. Yeah. We were still kind of preparing.
2: Yeah, my memory, my memory of it was that they were they were on standby, and from quite an a, an early stage, it was clear that. Yugoslavia as a football team was not sustainable because Yugoslavia as an entity was literally tearing itself apart. So um, I, I, it's nice to think they were all on a beach and feet up, but I, I very much suspect that was not the case. And um, they certainly played like they were uh, that they that they were um, preparing for a tournament, even if it was only preparing for a tournament's friendlies. That, that's that's my memory of the the run-up to 92, that everyone was at least half expecting Denmark to get the call.
0: I I do think, I I know, I think you're right. I'm sure they weren't that bit but there was an element of relaxation about even when it started So I think before one game, the day of the game, or the day before they they went to either Burger King or McDonald's, I forget what it was. There was another day where they just stopped off. I think there might have been, I think this was the morning of a game, and they stopped off and had a round of crazy golf. It was all quite relaxed. But
2: that, wasn't that the, the Danish way, though? I mean, yeah. that's the, the case in, in 86,
1: well, I, think, I, think I think, as well. I well, think it, it, was was it was before Molly Nielsen came. And I think the thing is, yeah. he tried to change their mentality. And then, I think, gave way a bit. And that's where the
0: McDonald's and the kind of crazy golf started creeping back in. Well, yeah, Piontek did as well, because he, he was German, which scared the hell out of a lot of the players. <laughs> I like, quite seriously, because I had kind of ideas about him. Probably Nelke I played in... Um, germany i'm digressing but a lot of the players say that in 86 he was too harsh on them because he was so he was kind of saying "Look, you'll never get another chance you'll never get another chance and he was right because the only one who did was michael loudrup um to play in a world cup but so he kind of i think he banned booze and he'd like trained them and they all said basically by the time they got to the second round they were absolutely knackered so it was it was a constant issue that kind of struggle between the kind of happy amateurs they used to be and the kind of modern discipline and that would you're right it was even an element that in 92 but i think yeah i think because the expectation is so much lower it made it a lot easier to to take things it's not like they turned up expecting to lose at all but just a slightly different approach i mean i think
2: they i think they were they were like like quite a few teams right the way up into the 80s they they thought they were not going to be there for a long time so if they're not going to be there for a long time in any tournament you might as well be there for a good time yeah and And um, uh, i think there there was quite a bit of that going on
1: Kim Vilfort is quoted as sort of saying that we, if we went and lost 4-0 in every game, it wouldn't have been a problem because nobody expected us to do anything anyway. So there was an element of a bit of freedom coming from that. And also mm. Kim Vilfort does say that effectively they had kind of been told that it was obviously possible that Yugoslavia might turn to absolute shit, which of course is what, what mm. happened. Um, so that thing about, yes, they were all on the beach, I think is probably apocryphal. So I don't even know why I said that really.
0: But there you go. So um, But it is it is kind of a commonly told story. It's kind of prefaces every, every Well, it's a better
1: story, isn't it? Then we were all just we all kind of knew really, we were playing some yeah. friendlies, we were all ready to we all sat twiddling our thumbs. Yeah, it's all better to think that we'd all literally got an holiday we had to be like flown in like a monarch, mm. you know, thing. Um so we're getting to the tournament. By the way, the England the England <laughs> that England Denmark game, which is their first game in group one, was right. it they were in? It was like it was like right. a maladroit traveling circus show it was have you watched that game it's,
0: I, I i watched it at the time i didn't john jensen at
1: the post he, he did but it was just it was just minging. i remember it being it the minging. dog of a game it was minking <laughs> and yeah. it and england's it was taylor's period so england had you know Carlton palmer front and center and andy sinton and everyone else
0: and here's what he it so paul parker was a very good right back and he'd been left out of the squad and england played three right backs in that tournament can you guess who they were Stay in mind that Paul Parker had been left out. One was Keith Curl, I think. Correct. He was. I think he played in the first game. One was... I've got, uh, I've was got. Did Stuart Pierce play right back? No. Or I've got a feeling did. Lee Dixon had been left home as well. Did, well David, say, oh, go on. did David Batty play right back in that tournament? He did against I Sweden. I knew he did, yeah. And the other one was a right wing back against France. I don't know. I'll be grasping for and, that one. You'll have to tell me. Andy Sinton. But of course, Andy Sinton. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I'd love Graham Taylor. He was such a brilliant manager in so many ways, but. He didn't help himself sometimes. I, think, I saw
2: Andy Andy Sinton score a hat trick in a match, but he wasn't I playing. I thought Andy right Sinton was a very
0: way. good player, but yeah, not as a, as a left wing, and not as a right wing back.
2: But you know, there's something about England's matches in all tournaments. That, that they all seem to be in the memory, except for, of course, England against Holland in Euro '96. They all seem to be grim nil nils <laughs> with players playing out of position. You know, it, it, it's like kind of stacking back a, you know, a pack of cards, sort of flicking through them, dull, 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 dull. Exciting. 4-1 against Holland. Dull, 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 dull. That's point it. Point, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, was, that wasn't in the finals. Oh, that was yeah, in yeah, that yeah. qualifying. So yeah, even 40%. that doesn't get in. You
1: know,
2: I watched, I watched, I watched so, you in,
1: know. England 5, Germany 1 in a pub in Cardiff. That was interesting. I,
2: I, <laughs> I watched it in the very uh, the very flat in which I'm talking now. And I phoned <laughs> my dad up after uh, uh, about 10 minutes. Uh, maybe a bit more than that. Maybe about 15 minutes. And I said what's this? Is this Germany team? What's going on here? Owen's going to score a hat-trick. And he said, yes, Owen will score a hat-trick. And Owen did score a (laughs) hat-trick. But we couldn't quite believe what was going on. But the extraordinary thing was, it it seemed predictable and hard to believe, but we're getting off the point. We
1: are getting off the point, yes. So so come back to... to, So yeah, it was about how England were terrible in that game against Denmark. And then, of course, they lost against the uh, Bralin, Dolene, Jolene um, Swedish (laughs) team. You know,
2: Martin Darlene has his own line of shirts in Sweden. Um, Is
1: this a joke? It feels like it's leading up to a joke.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) You go into into any clothes shop in Sweden and you find the Martin Darlene shirts.
0: Didn't Tino Esprit, on that note, bring out his own range of condoms?
2: I think he did. (laughs) In large, extra large, and oh my God, sizes.
1: (laughs) Oh, good Lord. Um, We are definitely off the point now. So yes, they lost (laughs) lost to Sweden. And then, of course, it was the, the crunch game was against France. And to digress into personal stuff for a minute, because you know a lot of people don't realise this, and I've forgotten, Kim Vilfort, who was the kind of anchor of that team in many ways, his daughter, Lena was dying of cancer throughout this entire tournament. He missed the France game because she basically had a terrible diet. You know, it, was, it was reaching mm. the end, and he flew away from the squad to go back. So they were without him for that game. And he then came back of course, for the semi-final because, according to reports, his, his daughter told him to go back even though she was only eight years old. Um, it yeah, it's incredible. Amazing story.
0: Yeah. And they scored in the final, of course. Yeah. yeah, like the whole the whole backdrop, yeah, absolutely remarkable. I don't know, how, I don't know what you do in a situation like oh, that. Oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, I've got kids
1: and I don't know how you even get your brain to put one foot in front of the other, never mind play football. There is something about, they do say, there's a reason why men are better at being psychopaths, isn't there? We can, we can compartmentalise better apparently. <laughs> But, definitely... but it, it
2: was—it was only 25 years ago, but um, that—that was—I wouldn't say expected, but mm. that was unremarkable. Um, yes. I think things have changed post-Diana, and um, <laughs> changes in else elsewhere in society. But that was. That was not a major story at the time. It I th- was there, and we were aware of it, but nobody, for one minute, I think, expected Vilfort to do anything other than come back and play. On that um, note, and that may be good. That may be right or wrong, but that was the culture at that time. It's changed significantly since then. But at the time, that was that was what was expected.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think at uh, QPR, Trevor, I think Trevor Francis is the manager, and I'm sure Martin Allen. Was fine for going to the birth of his kid and missing oh, a game. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I
2: think it was Martin <laughs> Allen. And then again, that was just. Which again,
0: yeah, just. You, you were, just yeah, exactly. It was coaching at the time. Yeah. So then they played
1: against the Netherlands in the semi final, which was actually a, a pretty reasonable game. And, and, and Henrik Larsson, he couldn't stop scoring for a, a small. If you look at the team that played in that game, I mean, uh, Vilfort was back then. It was Schmeichel, John Sieverbeck, Lars Olsen, Henrik Anderson, Kim Christofter, John Jensen, of course, Fleming Paulson. Ryan Loudrup, Tormund Picknick, Henrik Larsson, who who scored a couple of goals, and Kim Vilfort. As you said, it was a it wasn't a fantastic yeah, they, uh, team, was it?
0: Well, they played five at the back, and they had the pace of Loudrup on the break. He was a brilliant runner with the ball. Fleming Paulson was a massively underrated forward as well. Really mobile, very good at holding the ball up. He worked really well with Loudrup. But yeah, they were pretty defensive. They had actually Tom Picknick. Everyone laughed at him because of what happened at Liverpool. But he had a great tournament. He had a really good game against Van Basten. I think one player who is sometimes forgotten is Henrik Anderson, the left wing back. He was sensational in that tournament, but he got horrible injury. I think it was against Holland. I think he cracked his kneecap or something. Mm. And there are pictures of him, at, and you can. And it looks like you know you see someone in a horror film where they see like a part of their body just I don't know the biceps starts talking to them or something, and their face <laughs> is just. A, and it, I'll never forget his face. It was just absolutely horrible. So yeah. they, they, you know, they weren't that limited, but and then obviously, but they they were essentially workmanlike apart from the goalkeeper and the two forwards. Yeah, it is.
2: You mentioned some of those players there, and and Sieverbeck was, was seen as a failure. I think Manchester United, wasn't he? Uh, Torben Picknick is a, a kind of cipher for the bad overseas signing who turns <laughs> yes, into a yeah. joke um you know he was the day and lover of his his time and um you know john jensen became a folk hero at arsenal because um he couldn't score and it was well he couldn't score in that win.
1: tournament until he got to the no, final that was a brilliant absolutely. thing about it, yeah.
2: and and one kind of wondered and i i I saw John Jensen play a few times. He kind of ran around on the pitch, but he was very much, you know, he would have fitted into Mike Bassett's England team, John <laughs> Jensen. You know, he just ran around a bit. Um, so you know, there are three three players there who've got Euro European Championship medals and last time I looked I didn't have one. So um, fair play <laughs> to the three of them, but they they get various sort of levels of uh, of ridicule in their their club careers, but perhaps that shows how Anglo-centric uh, Things were uh, about football right up until probably sort of 2004 2005, um, where everything was seen through a lens of can they do it on a wet night at Stoke? Still is,
0: isn't it? Thing of Shevchenko it, to, to some to some, extent, Paborsky,
1: to some extent. he's a classic one. Apparently, had a terrible career just because they looked at that small period at Man United. But we'll come back to that. Yeah. Mm. In terms of semi-final, I think obviously they do, It was they beat. To go back to Denmark, they beat the Netherlands on penalties. Peter Schmeichel doing a you know a very Peter Schmeichel thing and saving
0: Marco van Basten's penalty, I, I, wasn't it? Can I just say, actually, it wasn't a Schmeichel thing. You know, he was actually not a very good penalty saver at all. He he made two. Legendary penalty saves. One, Maybe that's why mine is coloured
1: as not being a Super United fan. Maybe that's why my views are coloured. Yeah,
0: but it, yeah, he hardly ever saved penalties. He you know, was really well. I mean, obviously, one of the greatest goalkeepers of all time, but he wasn't that good on penalties. He made that famous save for Bergkamp as well yeah. for United in 99. But yeah, it actually was quite unusual to. And he'd not had a good game against Holland. He'd let the first one in. He had a brilliant tournament, and the final was one of the greatest games of his career, but he'd not actually had the best game in the semi. Um, so yeah, it was a huge. Moment. I think what I mean by a, a, a Schmeichel thing is that he always
1: managed to do something for his team. You know, he'd make himself true, yeah. big and not just literally, but also do something. Like he was like the opposite end of a Cantona. you know, Cantona was at one end of the pitch scoring off one chance, and he was at the other end. Like Shilton used to, you know.
0: Yeah. No, no, and that was so exemplified in the final. He was, he was quite awesome in the final. Um, but well, yeah, we'll get to that.
1: Yeah, so well, we're going to get to that now, I think, in terms of the finals. So go on then,
0: Rob, talk us through You've got some views of the finals. you want to talk talk about it? Well, so Germany, first of all, were quite lucky to get to the semis because um, they drew the first game of CIS, got a last-minute equaliser from Hessler, beat Scotland. It was a brilliant Scotland side. They were really unlucky to lose to both Germany and Holland. Best Scotland side I've ever seen. And then Germany was stuffed 3-1 by Holland in the final group game. And it meant that the CAS would have gone through if they'd beaten Scotland. And Scotland beat them 3-0 because CS had drawn their first two games and looked quite handy. Oh. So anyway, Germany owed Scotland. Then they beat Sweden quite easily in the semi. It was 3-2, but it was never really close. And of course everyone thought the final would be a formality. And um Schmeichel made two saves, one in the first half one in the second from Klinsman that were just awesome. One was low to his right, one was from a really close range bullet header. Um Jensen scored in between and even at 1-0 you kind of always thought it was coming and it never really did. There was a, that great second save from Schmeichel. Um, and then Vilfort kind of completed the kind of strange fairy tale by yeah, scoring the second it, goal. Were two, by the end, they were comfortable. But they were two nice
1: goals, weren't they? Well, I mean, obviously, yeah. yeah they, they were. And you talk about that running thing, Gary. The, the Jensen's bolting into the Forrest Gump oblivion after he scored his goal was one of the great pictures of the tournament, actually.
2: It was it was a, a kind of Marco Tardelli without the looks and the style, really, <laughs> wasn't
1: it? Yeah, I just yes. So, but I mean, what do you, what do we think of that Germany team when you look at it? You got like Ilgner, Reuter, Bremer, Kurler, Buckwald, Hassler, well, Riedler, the, Who Liverpool? Helmer, Sammer,
0: Effenberg, Klinsmann. I, I think the the most significant name is the one who wasn't there, which is Matthias, hmm. um, who was probably the best midfielder in the world, certainly in 1990. And, so they missed him a bit. I mean, it's still a good side. They would obviously added Sammer from the West German side that won in 1990. I think they were slightly, slightly missing something they had in '90, and not just matteo So, but I mean, everyone thought they were going to win quite easily in the final. Was Sammer East um, German?
1: Wasn't he DDR Sammer?
0: Yeah, he was yeah. exactly. So he came into the team after '90, along with I think Thomas Doll, who yeah. played a few games. Um, I think Andreas Thom, I think, was also yeah, a DDR. Right. they were a good side just a good German side they weren't a great side I think Holland probably hit the the highest heights in that tournament but then they blew it against Denmark maybe they were complacent I don't know Um, I mean it was a good German side I thought the 90s side was a great side but I think they'd slightly gone by then. Bremer was past his best Um, maybe Buchwald and a few others
2: yeah, uh, can I give you my memory of the final? Yeah, um, which so. is very different. Uh, I uh, I met my brother and some friends in uh, De Hems, which is the Dutch pub just off Shaftesbury Avenue and um, it was it was full of uh, of Dutch football fans who were one hundred percent behind Denmark and Of course, this is the summer, so it was hot. so I think we met at about six thirty or something like that, and the match was probably starting at, uh, at sort of eight o 'clock or half eight something like this. Um, and I started, the way you do in a pub, you get separated from your mates and you start talking to, to other people. And I was, I was drinking a Orangie Boom, which is not like <laughs> me, because I don't usually drink lager. But I started talking to these Dutch guys and boy, did we put, uh, did we put away a lot of Orangie Boom. So <laughs> I remember... I remember Jensen's goal, I have no memory whatsoever of Vilfort's goal, hmm. and um, just a great time because every single Dutch bloke in that bar, and it was all blokes, were wearing orange and 100% supporting <laughs> Denmark, as well, you can
0: imagine. Well, of course, yeah. Uh, just a c- couple of other quick points. There yeah. was um, There was a dodgy element to both goals, I think the first one came from... Someone being crunched down by the corner flag, and it was probably okay, but you know, might have been given second one. Villefort controlled it suspiciously close to his arm, <laughs> and of course, because nobody in England gave a toss that Germany had lost, frankly, there was just no reporting that at all. <laughs> ever, ever, ever. <laughs> the other thing I remember, and I don't know why it sticks in my mind, is Schmeichel's kit, his goalkeeper kit, which looked like the Blockbusters board but multicoloured version. Yeah, it did. That's right. Pretty yeah, it was. It was. It was when the Hormel kits went bad. But I think oh. it's hard to convey just how kind of romantic and feel good a triumph that was. It was just. Like I don't know, it just it just yeah captured something in a way that, that like you know Greece didn't, for example, and Greece were no worse than Denmark really in terms of style of play. Um, there was it just had a charm and an innocence and all that, and but it it did it was it was yeah it was really, it was really memorable. It, it was wonderful for
1: football. I'm sorry to use such cliches, but it really was, and you wish you know in a way they said that Greece was people have been it's almost like the Greece wins been airbrushed out of history. Nobody even talks about it anymore.
0: Yeah, really, but and Greece in with it, Greece was more impressive in a way because yeah. They hardly—I know—they—they they lost a group game, I think—but they—they were the like, emphatic winners, pretty much in all. I know it was one-nil every time, but they were—they just uh, Greece is just beyond explanation. But you're I right, people just—we don't talk about that anymore. Just—just
2: just wait till three or four years have passed, and we'll be saying the same thing about Leicester City. You know, Leicester City won the Premier League. <laughs> no. But they must have been boring. Where oh yeah, they were boring. Yeah, you don't hear much about it. Believe me, that is coming.
1: So that's a good point. I mean, so they won the tournament, obviously. So it's very much... As, as a kind of postscript, they then went on. Molly Nielsen kept his job. Obviously, he was inches away from being sacked and kept his job. They won the Confederations Cup. After this, was, was that the inaugural one? I think it may have been, but they went and won
0: that. I think they then qualified for. No, they didn't. They, they qualified for '98, to... didn't they? Oh yeah, but failed then. to qualify for. They failed to qualify for '94. Yeah. Um they were in a really tough group with Spain and Ireland, and they were stitched up in the last game in Spain. Um, Could Michael Laudrup return? Did they start playing a bit more expansively? Um, mm. And look what happened. But yeah, I, I, <laughs> I don't think he was manager in '98. I'm not sure to be honest. They did get there in '98. They were quite a good side. Got to the quarters. Lost to Croatia. In scared. No, they lost to Brazil. Lost three-two.
1: Did they lose lose to Croatia in that game? I imagine that. No, they lost to Croatia
0: in Euro 96 when Shuker tried to chip Schmuck from the halfway line. That's the one. Um, Sorry, I'm getting my tournaments mixed up. Thank you, Odd, you're here, Rob. (laughs) Yeah, thank God. (laughs) Um, But 94, they didn't qualify, which was kind of a big shock. Ireland, that was with that whole crazy night when all the big teams like England didn't qualify and Italy only just qualified and Spain scraped through. Um, I think we,
1: we have to do that in a future episode, I think, that crazy night. In 1993, when everything went crazy in terms yeah. of qualification, when and we'll talk about
0: became a murderer, yeah,
1: <laughs> when Jared Hulier kept it all in in, in perspective, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So there you go, Denmark, 1992. I hope you've enjoyed that little sort of ramble through some memories about that, and I'm sure we all remember it. And maybe you've learned something new there, or, or not. Uh, let us know that what really you think. Yeah, let you know. Let us know what you think at Ness and just before we go, we're going to talk about some memories about, about Old Wembley because that was a big thing in the 80s and 90s as well. I've got, I've got a strange one with, with, with Old Wembley because, because I'm an on brand Northerner. <laughs> I, I actually have been to football and the Rugby League Challenge Cup final at, uh, um... at, at Wembley. What's interesting is whether you, as a Northerner, whether you go to Wembley, and it, this probably still happens now actually, but I've not been to the new one. Every time you go to Wembley as a northerner, the first thing you do is you get off the coach and then you go and look in the estate agent's window, <laughs> and everyone goes bloody hell! It's a terraced house. Look, that's like your paws house, John. Look at the price of it. That's basically that's one of the things I remember about old Wembley. And and the other thing I remember as well is is in the I know it's there's always a story in a terrace about a bit being weed on by a man, but the old they, they were pissing everywhere uh, in the old terraces. <laughs> at Wembley, and I was at the Rugby League Challenge Cup final in '89, and I had a flag, and some bloke took his old man out and wazzed all over me flag, and I picked, <laughs> and honestly God, and I, it was on the floor rolled up, I picked it up, and it's literally dripping, and he had the audacity to say, oh, is in is, that very Lancashire Northern thing, he went, oh, is your flag all wet, cock? And, and my auntie was stood right next to me, mate, and went, of course it's bloody wet, you've just pissed all over it, you filthy pig, that was kind of my memory. Sorry, Gary likes a personal story. That's my personal story. I'll give you a proper story now. I'm an Oldham <laughs> an fan. And the biggest memory of Old Wembley for me was when I was there when Mark Hughes launched that equaliser in, in 1994. God. After Neil pointed, this was the FA Cup semi-final, for those who don't remember. Neil pointed had scored in a horrible game and a horrible performance. But we thought, we thought we were nearly there. And then the ball looped over Mark Hughes. He said, and to this day, I don't know how he volleyed that ball. To this day, yeah. it defies logic and
0: science to me. Basically, Craig Fleming was sitting on him, wasn't he? Yeah. Like, like Hughes was in mid air. He was almost, yeah, and Fleming.
1: Fleming was almost pulling him down by his shirt and somehow he got his yeah. knee over the ball. Sent it it was unstoppable into the top corner. And I think You
2: can't we, you can't let Neil Poynton go without mentioning his nickname though. One of okay. the greatest in football history.
1: I don't remember Neil Point's nickname, I'll be honest, Gary. Go on. Must be an Everton. This said. So, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. yes, of course. But yeah, so that goal and the thing is, is this whole thing—you know—goals that change a lot about a team. Yeah. Well, the Mark Hughes one massively, completely transformed Oldham's season because we knew we would lose the replay. We knew that was our chance. We knew we, we lost the replay four-one at Main Road. We knew that was going to happen. We then had to play—I can't remember how many games it was in the, in the space of six weeks because we'd had so many. We'd done so well in the tournament that we'd ended up backing up games. And actually, if you look, it's one of those moments. If you slow the the, the slow motion, if you if you paused the video as that goal went in and looked very closely, you can literally see the souls of the Oldham players dropping <laughs> out, dropping out of their shorts, basically, because it was it it really did change everything about that season know, for
0: Oldham. It had the opposite effect as well. That that goal won the league for United and cost Blackburn the league because United were really struggling. Remember the head that spell when. Cantona was sent off twice in four days. I think they had four red cards in five games. Yeah. The, the press were absolutely loving it. Everyone was out for them. Blackburn were closing in. And that goal changed everything. After that, they won the league pretty comfortably. I think, yeah, had they not scored that, I don't think Oldham would have gone down. And I certainly I think Blackburn would have won the league. We went down with 42 points that season. Forty-two games, though, right? Yeah, that's true. Even so. But even so, you're <laughs> right. I remember there was a I remember there was a game towards the end, was it Spurs at home? It was on TV, and by then you'd gone
1: you yeah, we were gone, just knackered. We
0: were,
1: like, we were running through treacle by the end of it. We just, we, we just got. It. Anyway, that wasn't old Wembley, but that was my few memories of old, of old Wembley there. But the main one well being the Mark Hughes goal. Who's next? Gary, do you want
2: to? Yeah, um, I have good and bad memories of of the old Wembley. My, my first trip there was 1977 for the League Cup final, and um, it was it was an extraordinary match in lots of ways, except anything that was actually interesting in terms of football it was a dire nil nil draw um, but uh, two things uh, come from the memory there the second half was delayed because the marching band one of the uh, one of the marchers had lost his spare um, in the marching band so there was a piece of, of sharp metal out on the field and this had to be tracked down so there was a, a delay while uh, while this went on. I've got no memory of how long that delay was but uh, but that, that was uh, delayed to the second half um, and the other thing was as we were I was in the upper tier terraced my two brothers my father and, and me um I was 77 so I was 13 about to turn 14 and um was was jammed against the wall of the uh, of the upper tier and in those days obviously there was the the horrors of Hillsborough were still uh some distance in the horizon um turnstiles people jumping into the ground there's some famous shots of of uh of everton fans i think being hoisted up to high windows um death defying leaps to 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 friends who would then haul them up um i'm quite sure that there was more than the uh the the um health, uh, health the health and safety certificates attendance at that match because we were really jammed in <laughs> in that upper terrace um but uh, we were we were um out quicker than expected because at nil nil the referee blew up for full time in a cup final and everybody trooped off there was no extra time <laughs> it went to uh it went to a replay, and I think a second replay where Chris Nicholl crashed the ball in from miles away and uh, Aston Villa won. you remember
1: won. all those replays, man. It's unbelievable. Oh, isn't it?
2: replay after replay. They sometimes replay on a Monday and then again on a Thursday. <laughs> and then you might have a league match against the same side on the Saturday should, before a third replay on the Tuesday.
0: We should do they And uh, they say,
2: they say fi- there's fi- too much football now.
0: We, we should do fixture pile-ups one week. Obviously, oh, Oldham 89 90 is an obvious one. Oh, but, yeah. God, yeah.
2: Um, the other thing about the the old uh, Wembley is I remember being um, less than impressed uh, by going to see an England match there. I think it was it was eighty one. I think it was the qualifier that sent England through to to Spain eighty two. And Paul Mariner scored off his knee as he was falling over. But I remember that that Wembley was quieter than I was uh, used to in football matches. And the main things you could hear were were. Um, angry chants between Tottenham fans and Arsenal fans, and then Chelsea fans and Millwall fans. And I remember thinking, you know, this is an England match here, but the the, the antipathy between the the clubs seemed to be stronger than uh, than the support for England, which possibly is a was a sign of the times back then. But again, it was an underwhelming England performance, and uh, I don't think I've seen England play at Wembley since then. Um, on the upside, uh, it was always a tremendously exciting when you came out of Wembley Park Station and you saw those twin towers, and those twin towers really were iconic. Um, yeah. When I, when
1: I first went there in '85, it was probably well, I mean, I was young; and I hadn't experienced much, but it does live with you. Yeah. Seeing that for the first time.
2: And something that comes with that uh, with that vision of the, the Twin Towers as, as you come out of Wembley Park tube station, which is not quite so good, which is the aroma of urine as everybody <laughs> relieves themselves, or almost everybody relieves All themselves. All over
1: your flag. The, All I mean, the wall. Yeah, <laughs>
2: the walls there they've been holding on since baker street and being in the pub out, out, out uh, at baker street there and um mixed with that the uh, the whiff of uh, of fried onions with the hot dog sellers oh, that yeah. would line mm-hmm. up uh, what was then olympic way which i think has now changed to to wembley way yeah, that was, yeah. um it was horrible inside the ground as yeah, well I'm it thinking. was built in the 1920s it felt like it was built in the 1920s but you can forgive a lot for those twin towers and that that sense of of having been singing we're going to Wembley we're going to Wembley put the champagne on ice we're going to Wembley twice and everything and you were actually at Wembley and my my last recall of of the old Wembley was being exactly in the line with Paul out as the ball bobbled up, and he headed <laughs> home the winner in 1995. I can't remember who we were playing in 95 in the FA Cup. And who was it, Rob?
0: I can I'm remember. Sorry, sorry, what was it? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, who,
2: yeah. Who, who did Everton uh, beat in that 1995 yes, yes. <laughs> anyway, it's getting very, very Everton there. But, it is. Um, have yeah. <laughs> memories, <I've laughs> memories of 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 eighty six and eighty nine, both of which were were poignant in their in their different ways. But perhaps we'll do that uh, yeah. as a different set of yeah. stuff. But um, the arch now at the new Wembley is striking and obviously makes a statement. But it doesn't have the, the those twin towers which. With the the two stands at Highbury, the two Art Deco stands at Highbury, which you really appreciated when you went inside them rather than the outside, although the outside was impressive. Um, two tremendous pieces of football architecture, of this country's football architecture. I would argue tremendous pieces of urban architecture, um, both of which have gone now.
0: Yeah, my, so my main one would be uh, April 1990, rushing out of school, going to the Halifax Building Society to meet my brother and get on a train to see england Czechoslovakia, And I've just had a look at you. The attendance was 21,000, and that's six weeks before a World Cup. But anyway, that's another story. But um, there was so much talk about Gazza in the build up that it was his last chance to get on the plane, never mind in the team, because he'd had a few mixed forms and so on. And he was just magnificent. He made three, scored one, um, just played just everything you expect of Gazza, really. There was a flip pass over the top for Steve Ball to score. Uh, he beat two on the wing and crossed for both to score another one, finished it off with a solo goal in injury time. It was just just so good. The kind of thing that kind of, it does live with you. Um, and after that, not only did he obviously book his place on the plane, but he mm. went straight to the team. I, I almost can't imagine a more comprehensive performance of a central midfield player It was that good. And um, in a way, that stays with me more than Italian 90, just probably because I was there, but also there, because... Yeah you look back and realize how close he was to not even going because Robson didn't trust him. There was all that daft of the brush stuff. Mm. And um, there was a game when Robson had the hump and said, we need two balls, one for the team, one for Gascoigne. And to do that under that much pressure. But what's, what I find interesting is that apparently in the um, tunnel beforehand, he was slamming the ball off a wall right into his, by his face. Yeah. So he was clearly like, incredibly hyped up. And you realise how precarious the thing that is because a year later he was equally hyped up against yeah, Arsenal, course, yeah, yeah. scored one of the great goals but then equally hyped up against Forrest and obviously Naptic ruined his whole name. career. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's quite sad. I mean, the first thing when you said about Wembley memories was the goal against Arsenal but I wasn't there for that. Um, but that's still probably, from a personal point of view and excluding United stuff, it would definitely be that. It was, just, it was just immense. And again, like we said in the first week or whenever it was, there hasn't been a player like him and I doubt there ever will be an English player like him. I know we've had great players in different positions but I don't think we'll ever see a number eight no. who does what he did and in, with the personality and everything else so yeah that'd be mine. Mm-hmm. and back to school next day to boast to everyone <laughs> that bit of Wembley in that really annoying 14 year old way where you shoehorn it into every what's conversation what's interesting
1: is that that kind of 21,000 crowd for an England friendly was not unusual was it no, they got they got went. better when Venables took over that's my
0: memory they seemed to get better then but before that they were pretty abysmal really I I thought, and I'm not certain, I'd have to check this. I thought they got, actually, do you know, you're right. Actually, we should have asked Mike about this, because I've got a feeling he said that quite a few were crap in the build-up to U96. You would think logically that it would get better after Italian 90, and that's what I was going to say. But I've got a feeling he said there were some really poor crowds, and then after U96, it really boomed. What started Italian 90 was kind of completed, and then after that, it was kind of big crowds for every game, pretty much. Like we will
1: draw it. this episode to a close at that point. Thank you very much to the pair of you. Thank you for everybody for listening. Thank you for subscribing, and uh, we welcome your company and hope to welcome your company again. Thank you very much. Take care.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network.